You are listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Susan Dolan, your host, and with me today discussing hospice is Dr. Stephen R. Connor, Vice President for Research with the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization and author of the book, Hospice, Practice, Pitfalls, and Promise. Dr. Connor, welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. Thank you, Susan. Great to be here with you. Give us a history of hospice. Hospice is an old word. It actually began back in the Middle Ages. The medieval history of, of hospice was that people who were traveled back in, in the Middle Ages um, and became fatally ill generally weren't allowed into hospitals. Uh, the hospices were way stations for travelers, uh, traveling mainly to and from the Holy Land. And the, in those hospices, people could be cared for who were, who were fatally ill, sometimes the knights themselves who were wounded. There were certain orders of knights who dedicated themselves to caring for colleagues in who they refer to as the, their lords, the sick and dying. And there was a tradition developed of extra special care for people who were known to be fatally ill and that they deserved some uh, extra attention and special care. That tradition was carried forward uh, around the turn of the century uh, in some of the religious orders who cared for the, quote, incurably ill in Ireland and in England. Um, and that tradition, again, uh, continued in, in various special, mainly religiously-based hospitals uh, until around the 1960s when a physician by the name of uh, Dr. Cicely Saunders decided to open the first modern hospice in England in outside of London. That was St. Christopher's Hospice. Cicely Saunders, who was originally a nurse who became a social worker and then a nurse and then became a physician, <laughs> decided that uh, we really needed to do a better job of the scientific care of, uh, of patients. They needed to have that special attention, but they also needed exceptional care in you know, treating pain and other symptoms of illness. And so the term palliative care was coined actually in, in um, Canada to describe the kind of care that patients needed in, in hospice, which was a uh, care that uh, focused on all their symptom problems, pain, uh, other physical symptoms, but really was care that cared for the whole person. So we wanted not just the physical person to be cared for, but their emotional needs, their relational needs with other people, uh, their social needs, um, their, and their spiritual needs and practical needs. So all of those things, uh, we try to treat the whole person in hospice care. That's one of the main characteristics. And who are members of this team providing these different services? The core of a hospice usually involves um, a physician, uh, nurses, social workers, counselors, chaplains, home health aides who do personal care, and volunteers. And what are the biggest misconceptions about hospice? Well, I think probably the biggest misconceptions are that you have to, to give up and accept that you're dying to become a hospice patient. I think you, know, you have to at some level acknowledge the fact that you know, you're not, that there's a possibility that you're not going to survive. But that's a journey that people have to take, uh, and everyone does it differently, and we have to meet people really where they are. Uh, you don't have to give up all treatment to get hospice care. The other kind of misperceptions are that it's only for cancer patients. Um, now less than half the patients in hospice have cancer as a main diagnosis. Also, I think there's a fear that we all have that uh, somehow uh, other people die, but we don't die. It's kind of that, I like to think of it as the unconscious belief in immortality that we, we all think we're going to live forever. So, you know, coming to hospice is difficult for some people. Who pays for hospice services? Actually, hospice 
Medicare is covered by insurance. It's not commonly known, but Medicare, which is for older people over 65 in our country, uh, pays for all of hospice care costs on a on a, a risk basis. Also, Medicaid for the poor, and private insurance generally has uh, benefits for hospice care as well. And what are the latest statistics on hospice usage? In 2005, over a million people received hospice care, 1.2 million actually. Out of that group, there were about 800,000 patients who died, and that's one out of every three people who dies in the United States at present, uh, roughly 2.4 million deaths. Um, Not everybody who dies will need hospice or palliative care. Probably about two-thirds, roughly two-thirds of patients will need some kind of palliative care. So we're probably meeting at this point, we, we think, half the need, but for too short a period of time. And how does hospice make an attending physician's job easier? When you think about all these needs, you know, the physical, emotional, spiritual, social needs, and practical needs, hospice has uh, an interdisciplinary team that takes care of all these different aspects of uh, the patient and family. We always, we never admit a patient alone. We always admit the patient and and family. And by family, we mean, uh, very broadly speaking, you know, the people, the attachment network that the person has that's that's ill, could be friends, could be uh, blood relatives or others. But we provide, in many ways, we're the eyes and ears for physicians uh, when we're seeing patients, and we're improving the care of the patients. You have to earn a right to care for patients uh, at the end of life, and when, when hospice does a particularly good job and physicians get that feedback regularly from families afterwards, um, they're then encouraged to refer more patients. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Susan Dolan, your host, and joining me today is Dr. Stephen R. Connor discussing hospice. May physicians still see hospice patients as an attending and get reimbursed by Medicare? Absolutely. When a patient under Medicare is admitted, there's an election form that's filled out, and the primary attending physician that sees the patient um, is identified and continues to bill Part B Medicare as they normally do. Uh, Any other physicians who see the patient actually have to bill the hospice for their services and hospice pays them. But the primary physician retains the role of primary physician and continues to see the patient and gets uh, to bill under Part B. And what would you say to physicians who are thinking about bringing up hospice to one or more of their patients? I think it's important to understand that you want to be honest with the patient and give them the facts of their illness without necessarily taking their hope away. And we really don't want to do that in hospice either. We want, none of us know how long an individual patient's going to live. And as I told you earlier, we see a significant number of hospice patients who actually get discharged alive. And so I think bringing it up in a way that says, you know, you need some additional and special care going through this period and your family needs the support during this time and that you know, the hospice team is, has the right staff to support you through this in, during this difficult time. And, you know, and I'll stay with you. I think it's important for physicians, um, if they can, to indicate to the patient that they're going to remain there. Physicians are not going to abandon them. And that there's a lot we can do to help them with their quality of life and with their symptom management. What happens when a patient starts to feel better so they think they should come off of the hospice program? Patients who do actually improve sometimes under hospice care, it's not uncommon, and and 10 or 12% of patients actually get discharged alive. Most of those, because their condition has improved so much, and of course they can come 
off of hospice and back on as many times as they want. But you really have to look at each person very individually. Some patients who may improve should stay on hospice because it's a temporary improvement and, you know, their prognosis is still is still short. If you have a patient who improves considerably and seems to be getting better or seems to be stable and doing well, uh, then they many times have to be discharged um, because hospice is not a benefit for patients who are going to live years, chronically ill patients. It's for people whose prognosis is short. They can be on hospice for longer than six months, for years sometimes, if their condition continues to look uh, look very poor. What if a patient does feel better? They come off the program, pursue curative treatment that's not successful. May they come back on? They certainly can at any point that they decide. And curative treatment is a kind of a difficult term to define. Most of the treatments that are available for cancer patients with advanced cancer and other uh, patients with other organ failure problems or dementia or things like that, there really isn't much curative treatment available. There are treatments that may be geared toward an attempt to prolong life or sometimes to reduce symptoms. And those treatments, the symptom-relieving treatments certainly can be provided while patients are still on hospice. If the patient is intent on seeking cure and wants an aggressive um, effort at that, then they step off of hospice, they can certainly come back on. And what if a physician knows that a patient could benefit from hospice services, although the patient and or family is making it very clear they're not ready to talk about hospice, they don't want hospice? Well, I mean, I think patients and families have the right to decide any kind of treatment that they should or shouldn't get, and so we have to respect that. I think we have to be, it's helpful to kind of probe a little bit and find out what the underlying resistance is about. Sometimes it's based on misinformation. They may think, again, that somehow they might not live as long if they were under hospice care, or they may just have too many emotional feelings about the grief and need some help with that. I think it's really important to understand the, the underlying reasons for their for their fear or their resistance. Describe open access. The concept of open access in hospice means that any patient who is facing a life-threatening illness with a, with a short prognosis should be served by a hospice program. When the Medicare law was passed, uh, hospices were given uh, considerable freedom in terms of how they defined curative or palliative care. And in this case, we find, and in a lot of the research that's been done, we find that it's better to go ahead and admit patients with a, with a limited prognosis, no matter what their treatment is. Again, like I said earlier, very, it's very very rare for a truly curative treatment to be available for patients like this. And if, if, there, if there certainly is a, a treatment that has a high probability of cure, the patient should take that treatment and shouldn't be in hospice care. But for the most part, these are not curative treatments. They're prolongative, maybe remissive therapies or symptom therapies. And we think people make better decisions about their care consistent with their goals for care if they have uh, the support of the hospice team. And so for some patients, they'll continue on those treatments, chemotherapy or other treatments, until uh, they're near the end. And others will decide that that's not consistent with their goals and they'll, they'll discontinue. And what happens in open access is that the patients tend to get into hospice care earlier. And then, you know, the increased reimbursement from the longer lengths of stay actually finances the cost of paying for those treatments pretty, pretty effectively if done right. Uh, length of stay in hospice is a concern. About over 30% of patients are on hospice for seven days or less. Uh, the average is about two months uh, on hospice care at the present, uh, but the median or the sort of midpoint of is 26 days is sort of more typical of the hospice experience. What's the number one complaint you hear about hospice? 
you know, you don't hear a lot of complaints about hospice, but most people, it's, uh, why didn't I know about this sooner? Um, I was referred to late or didn't get into hospice care. We also, we do a um, an evaluation, a national evaluation of, of hospice where we ask families after the death to critically evaluate the care they got under hospice, and we get about 150,000 surveys back here at uh, the national organization annually to look for trends, where areas where care could improve, and probably the one other thing we see besides the referred to late is just, you know, and, it, and it's probably related to being referred to late, is um, how much preparation the patient for the family had to uh, care for the patient who was at the end of life. So we need, you know, to do more in terms of educating and preparing people in advance for the kinds of things that they're going to have to, you know, they're going to see their loved one go through. Dr. Connor, thank you for joining us today to discuss hospice. You're most welcome, Susan. I'm Susan Dole, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM 233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.